Sarah Jane King joins me in studio this morning and I'm very, very excited to be chatting to her. Sarah Jane walks in here into the studio, fully made up face just after 8 o'clock on a Wednesday morning. I've walked in from outside. I'm feeling like I'm overheating and you look like a million dollars. You are very kind, but what you're also not telling the people is that the only reason I look like this is because I've got a TV thing in, in a couple of hours. Had it just been, not that I wouldn't beautify myself for you, my darling, but had it just been a normal Wednesday, I could have possibly come in in my pajamas. I would have been quite okay with that. I think I might have appreciated that even more because I would have gone, okay, no, she's feeling that comfortable with me. Because that's actually who you are, right? You are that comfortable just being, this is who I am. And it's not that you even, oh, this is the the impression that I get. It's not that you do it from a place of take me or leave me. You actually just don't think about anyone else in that sense. Like going, I've done this and you need to accept me who I am. You're just like, oh, here I am. It's taken an awful lot of work to get to this point, though. I think that's what's crucial is that I am where I am because the other life that I used to live, which was pre-15 years ago and and pre-recovery and and being clean and sober was the very antithesis of that. I was painfully aware of what people thought of me all the time. And so the work that I've done now to get to this point where I would just be able to rock up and, you know, in a duck and pyjamas and and have this conversation that we're about to have very openly, very honestly about who I am and where I find myself in this moment. That's taken work. I was not born that way. Definitely not. Absolutely. And you share a lot of that in your book. So let's Mm, get into that because you share so honestly. Mad Bad Love. Yes, ma'am. Now, I had the luxury of reading this book while I was actually at home dealing with COVID. I had my time. I was completely isolated. No one here. I mean, my husband is overseas. I was completely by myself. What I absolutely loved about sitting with this book is that I completely felt like I had someone sitting right in front of me telling me their story, Mm -hmm. that at some point when I got up to make myself a cup of tea, I found myself kind of turning around wanting to offer you a cup of tea because it felt like you were sitting right there with me, which speaks to how incredibly, honestly, you share in this book. Mm. I I can't entirely tell the entire period over which this book takes place, Mm -mm. but let's start there. This starts, the story actually starts many, many years ago. Many, many, many years ago. And the thing that I that I was I was anxious with, because this is my second book, it follows on from Killing Caroline. The thing that I was nervous about was how do I there'll be people who didn't read that and I need to catch them up. Um, but how do I not repeat? And actually it all happened quite serendipitously in terms of the telling of this story. Um and it and it started many, many, many years ago. It started really with with my birth um and and what happens when a small baby is surrendered for adoption and the legacy of that um which often people i don't think think about when we think about adoption they kind of go oh well this one couldn't have a kid or this one and then you know and it's this beautiful solution which actually it isn't adoption starts with trauma and that trauma if it's not dealt with like any trauma will show up again in your life and that's essentially what I write about and it and and for me the way it showed up was in addiction and the addiction that I focus on in this book is really love addiction codependency attachment which I think an awful lot of us recognize in ourselves absolutely and I think that was one of the parts that that hit me a lot along with many other parts and, and moments in the book was when you had said that adoption 
you had gone, you'd walking, I think you're walking around in London, mm-hmm. right? And you came across someone and you heard the stalk mm-hmm. and how we had spoken about adoption and how important it is for families mm-hmm. and even the families who are adopting to actually go for therapy, that there's so much to deal with mm-hmm. and that you had realized that everything that you had gone through, the addiction, you were, you were a textbook case along with your brother That's who had it. also been adopted. Absolutely. Of everything that you had gone through. There's this idea of just accepting mm-hmm. and being grateful that this is, you've gotten this wonderful opportunity but not realizing that the trauma is still there and prevalent and it's you know and and and, and I love that you've picked that up because some people haven't really picked that up um and 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 I do a lot of work in adoption circles and and there's a lot of pushback against it there's a lot of defensiveness there's a lot of pushback essentially what and it was Paul Sunderland who's a psychotherapist and addiction psychotherapist and what he was talking about was how in all his years as an addictions therapist their adopted people were overrepresented in treatment centers we know that to be true we know that adopted people are four times more likely to attempt suicide we're four times more likely to end up in psychiatric facilities in rehabs in jail we know that and we have to start looking at the why and Gable Marte talks about it it's an uh, an ab a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. It's not normal for a seven week old baby to be given up by its mother. It's completely abnormal. A normal reaction to that then is, how can I find something to love me, to love me, to love me? Well, I tell you what fills that void really nicely: drugs, alcohol, sex, drugs, and ro- you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's why we are so high up in the oh look, they're they're addicts. And they've been adopted. That's why. It's that thing. It's the attachment. It's that base human connection that I don't think people, when they sit there and sort of see people that, you know, November is adoption month and people draw little happy smiles on their faces. Not, that's not really what adoption is, unfortunately. There's an awful lot that goes deeper. And there's an awful lot of people walking around traumatized, adoptees or otherwise, with the unprocessed trauma. And like you just touched on, you said the addiction in this book as well. This is this is touching on another addiction, not just the addiction that you've had to deal with. You share your story. And I love the fact that you kind of brought people up to speed. You brought me up to speed because I didn't read your first book. Mm-hmm. So that was great. And then you kind of brought us up to speed. But then you shared on your addiction. But then the addiction of your loved one. Yeah. You share that and how incredibly traumatic that is for the people who love while you are also dealing with the addiction, the addiction of codependency and the love addiction. Yeah, yeah. And it all culminated when I became pregnant with my daughter. So this is the father of the father of my daughter, Enver, who I write about, um, who is um, a a a recovering heroin addict, you know, by the grace of the universe for just for today. Um, And the brutality of what it means to be the loved one, whether that be a partner, mother, sister, sibling, whoever, of somebody in an active addiction. And heroin, uh, heroin addiction is, I don't like the height, there's, you know, there's no hierarchy of addiction, but whew, it is, it is next level. And I'm very real about the realities of that in the book. And I, I had to think, how real do I get about this? But my, my, belief around memoir writing is that unless you're going to be completely honest and shine a light on all the dark places you may as well write fiction yes yes I agree with you Mm. absolutely and you I mean there's just a lot I've got so many notes Mm, I need mm, to mm. touch on so many of those things let's start at the start you 
and it starts it so beautifully says it at the back that you you feel like your life is together everything is perfect right you've now bought a place you are on air people know who you are and you are pregnant mm. Mm. Life is actually pretty awesome. Mm. You had fallen pregnant pretty fast. At one point, you guys had just discussed jokingly. You had said, "Hey, I'm getting older." Two minutes you, later, you know, they be- <laughs> sorry. That seems terribly unfair to him. At least fifteen minutes later. Okay, at least let's go with that. <laughs> okay, let's go with fifteen. I'll I'll give you another two. How about seventeen? Let's let's add the two to the fifteen. We'll go with seventeen minutes later. Yeah, <laughs> but there you were. Pregnant, you didn't expect it to happen so fast. Yeah. Also because of everything you'd put your body through in yeah. previous addictions. And you thought everything was perfect. And suddenly Inver just disappeared. Just just, just literally disappeared. Um, and I discovered when I was about nine weeks pregnant <clears throat> that he'd relapsed on heroin. And not only had he relapsed, he hadn't just relapsed. He'd actually been using for a really, really long time. And I wasn't aware of it. And so from... The point, uh, I think I was, it was our, my 12-week scan with our daughter. I didn't see him again until the, 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 the morning of giving birth. And, you know, I have to sort of sometimes thank the universe and all the things, elements that he was present for the birth of our daughter. But it was horrific. As we, I fetched him <clears throat> uh, to go to the hospital. And as we were driving to the hospital, he said to me, we've got a problem and I said what do you what do you mean we've got a problem and I he said you need to pull over and he pulled over the car he jumped he said I'll be back in five minutes he jumped out of the car came back 15 minutes later and it was only when we got to the hospital and I was kind of signing all the papers for admission that I realized he literally sold the shirt off his back to school before we went to go and have a baby Sarah Jane what goes through your mind at that moment I'm not even sure that anything in that moment, you know, there are there are moments that we go through that are so traumatic in our lives that uh, the brain is very clever in that way and that it allows us to dissociate from an awful lot of pain and trauma. And at that point, although I intellectually realised what was happening, emotionally I couldn't possibly connect with the horror of that because I was about to deliver a baby. And it was only, and then unfortunately his using continued it, it got worse, if that was even possible at that point, um, for a good six months um, after our daughter was born. Uh, and so that actually began, that paled into insignificance because then we came, you know, we took our daughter home uh, and I discovered that he'd sold some of her baby clothes for heroin. He'd stolen out of my house. And, and you know that why it was so important, Tracy, that I spoke about that is that the addiction is so insidious that very often the people who aren't addicted, and yes, I'm a recovering addict, but a recovering addict, the people who aren't addicted to the substance or the behaviour feel a shame that doesn't belong to them. Mm. In fact, shame doesn't belong anywhere in addiction. It fuels it, but it doesn't belong anywhere. Addiction is not a moral issue. And so I was so... Uh, hesitant. Do I write this stuff? Do I not write this stuff? And I thought, you have to write this stuff because as I know, because I sit in a lot of meetings with other people who are either recovering addicts or family members or loved ones of recovering addicts, what my experience is not unique. There are families across the racial, social, whatever dynamic diaspora who are experiencing the very things that I write about. The anxiety of a loved one in addiction, the, the stealing, the, 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 the lies, the deceit, the heartache of it. And I thought, I'm not going to, you can't, you can't sugarcoat that. 
it is what active addiction is a hellscape for whoever gets caught in its tsunami. There was at some point at the time, you know, after he had left, he had he had relapsed. You were still pregnant at the time. You were on air. You were dealing with all these moments. We know what that is like. You're having to be absolutely everything to your listeners. You're mm. having to be everything that it is that they need mm-hmm. while going through all of that yourself. And like you say, it's very easy to to kind of uh, it's what we do. Yeah, I think it, it's part of the trade, right? The light it, goes on. The light goes on, and you go on, on. goes the smile, big smile on your exactly. face, and you just continue going. But for a while, you had done that so well that you kind of almost ignored the fact that there was this little baby mm, growing inside of you until you were on air, and she kicked, <laughs> and that's when you went to go and buy that beautiful baby grower, that pink yeah. and gold. Yeah. Baby grower, which Enver, like you just previously touched on, ended up having sold. He had stolen it and Stol- sold it. Sold it on one she- train station for a baggie of heroin, yeah. That broke my heart when you said you'd been searching and searching and searching for this grower. And you couldn't find that grower. Um... How do you move past that, Sarah Jane? Because at the core of all of this, I'm feeling this is a book of, yes, it is addiction, but it's also about forgiveness. Mm. How did you move past that moment of this beautiful grower that you'd been waiting to put on your little baby girl Mm. at some point for Mm. it to grow into, and Mm. it was no longer there? Listen, I'm not going to lie. It forgiveness is also a journey. I know we often hear people saying you need to make the decision to forgive. The decision is one thing that the process of it is, is another. Um, and so an awful lot of, they got to a point and you, and you'll read this in the book where somebody kept saying to me, you need to get help. You need to get help. Stop focusing on him and his addiction. You can't control it. You know, um, you, you didn't cause it. You can't control it. You can't cure it. Focus on you. You need to be okay. Whatever dance he's doing over there, you need to make sure that you're doing your own waltz, which is looking after yourself and therefore your daughter. And in, and in doing that work, I had to be reminded, even though at the time I was a you know twelve year clean and sober, it was like my knowledge of addiction seemed to have just completely gone out of my head. But I had to be reminded that addiction is not personal. Nothing he was doing, even though it felt personal, he didn't wake up in the morning and say, "I'm going to steal that baby grow that SJ just bought for our newborn daughter." He woke up in the morning and thought, "I have to use." That's addiction. And once I got my brain around that. It doesn't take away the pain. It makes it easier to forgive. And and then and then, you know, and, and I try not to talk about his journey of recovery because it because it is his, but he you know, he 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 for a day at a time he's clean and sober today, so that helps. I have no control over what he chooses to do in the future around his addiction. If he does the work, like all of us as, as recovering addicts, there's no reason to use again. The other thing also is that I could see the. I started to see him again as Enver and not a monster, because in my eyes he'd only he'd just become a monster. Who is this person? Who does that? And then I I would have these little moments, moments where I'd see him with our daughter, and I would see the man that I'd fallen in love with from fifteen years before, and I'd go, he's in there somewhere. He just doesn't know how to get out. Um, 
it's it's really difficult. I'm not going to lie. It's really difficult. And, you know, <laughs> we've both just had like a really teary moment <laughs> because because it was awful. That moment of the realisation where I'm looking for this baby grow at home and he's sitting there holding our daughter and she's like three days old. And I say to him, have you seen it? And there's a twitch on his face. And I know in that instant, the baby grow that I've bought is somewhere in Weinberg now. You know, you know what I mean? It, it's horrific. But healing is possible recovery is possible so yeah I love that I just I so I have moments where I because I'm an incredibly I'm a very <laughs> and a lot of people will tell you this people who know me I can be incredibly cold I can be very I'm, I'm one of those incredibly like cut off like mm, mm, two three mm, chances mm, done mm, peace mm, out mm, mm. and I literally like I'm that person like peace out yeah like, yeah yeah I, I know so you like <laughs> And and I, I so so here's my thing with that. Exactly like you're saying, you are not that person. I often tend to find myself on the other side having these conversations with people and I'd be like, No man, come on, just make a let's move on. Just because I'm like that. I know that. And I, I don't tend to lose patience. I have no desire to fix people. I'm one of those people. I have no desire. I feel like you're an adult. I'm an adult. I'm not your mother. Fix yourself. I'm I'm full on that. Mm. And it's not a great Hear me, hear me when I say to you, it's not a great place and a person to be. I know it has its perks, but I think more often than not, empathy and great sympathy really does take people so much further. But my point with that is I remember sitting there and going, at no point did I get upset with you for being that person who so desperately wanted to help this man. That's so interesting for me because a lot of people have said, um, there were times I just wanted to shake you. And And I say to them, and by the end of the book, what did you feel? Because I get that. As I was writing it and my publisher was saying, you're going to have to, you know, you, you you have to unpack why you're staying. Yes. And the why goes back to our first question, which is about, and that first conversation around attachment had nothing to do with Enver. Yes. It was all to do with me. It was all to do with don't leave me, abandonment, attachment. That's why people stay. That's why people stay in dysfunctional. It's not because they're stupid. It's not because they're idiots. It's not because they're walkovers. It's 100 times out of 100 because they're dealing with their own trauma. There's something in themselves that says, I can't leave. What will happen to me if I leave? It's not about the other person. Really isn't. No. And that's what I had to learn. And I and that's what I kind of picked up on. So it's really good for me to kind of go back to and easy for me to kind of go, I get that. I understood that because from the get-go, it was almost made very, very clear. So I understood your backstory, which is why I at no point blamed you for staying. Mm. What, what I did find interesting, though, was y- you touch on, you know, we are all raised on these beautiful little love stories that sometimes love should be hard. And that's a conversation I often have have for teen girls at schools when I go stop believing these stories about love has to be hard Mm-mm-mm. because it's not true that that if he hurts you that that means it's true love and that you push through and at one day you're going to smile and you're going to run off into the distance yeah. together with the sun setting on the back of two beautiful horses and all those so I often go with that but I go just don't believe that it doesn't have to be so mm-hmm. hard I'm not saying it's going to be easy mm. but it shouldn't have to hurt so much yeah and you had said You'd seen those stories. So you kind of constantly saw yourself in this kind of love story of having to push through. Constantly. If I just keep going, the universe will deliver this love affair to me. Uh, Hold on a minute. No, uh, that's not how that works. I genuinely believe that. I really did. And, And again... My my addiction needed me to believe that. My addiction, my love addiction, my codependency, my desire to be loved. And, you know, when, when the most important person in your life on a base human biological level 
gives you to strangers and gets back on a plane to South Africa and disappears out of your life at seven weeks old. The It's pre-verbal, Tracy. It's not even mummy's going to go now. It's at seven weeks old. You don't even know you're a separate person, a separate entity to this, to the carrier of you. It's pre-verbal. So that, that is... And, it, and it's stored in the limbic system. All trauma is stored, stored in the limbic system. And it doesn't just go away. And the limbic system doesn't care if you're seven weeks old or 70 years old. If you don't deal with the with the trauma, it'll just sit there. You know, all these books that we're coming out now, The Body Keeps Score, What Happened to You. That's what it's talking about. That. I want to touch on the forgiveness again. Mm. Not just for Enver, but this entire book is about forgiveness. And let's go on all the people that you've had forgive. You had to, you mentioned this. You go, I've... I've had to forgive my mother, okay, my biological mother mm. and father, mm. but who you are in touch with now, your, your biological yeah, father. My dad, yeah, Yes, and your family, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and his kids, yes. Um, your adoptive mother and father yep. going through that. Your brother, your adoptive brother, even your in-laws mm. that you've had to forgive. And you touch on all of that. And and all I kept thinking was, this is this is the toughest part of everything. When you look at even your in-laws going that they knew what was happening. And I suppose sometimes that's what we want. Right? We want someone to come and go, I am so sorry that I didn't reveal it to you. And I'm so sorry I hurt you. And I'm so sorry I wasn't there. And getting to the point of going, life is so much better if you just accept the sorry you've never gotten. It, and it's, it's so hard. That is one of the things that I've struggled with the most is, is not getting the sorry that I feel I'm owed. Right? And I still struggle with that from, you know, from people outside of that list that you've mentioned. Um, And it's it's I think that's actually one of the hardest things. And coming to the when I talk about doing the work, a lot of it is doing the work around acceptance of exactly as you said, that you'll never get the sorry. And and it's it becomes a lot easier again for me to see people through the lens of their own trauma, because very, very rarely are people just mean, mean spirited, nasty. It's it's so rare if you look at people. And a lot of this book also is about generational trauma, really. And, and at the end, I talk about how for me, it's about breaking the cycle. So my children don't then have to carry. They'll have stuff. Of course they will. But they don't just by virtue of being my children have the legacy of all of my pain definitely not that's why I do the work and so it when it gets difficult and I struggle with the forgiveness which I still do a lot because people are still triggering yeah of course and and also not everyone's doing the work yes 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 oh we know (laughs) that people (laughs) the very people who are who are are harming you are often not doing the work it's not like you both go let's do the work and you sit down Mm -hmm. and go i'm sorry i'm sorry very often they're still as toxic as they always were which is very triggering hurt people hurt Hurt people hurt people Mm. so it's it becomes a lot easier to when you're working in that process of trying to forgive to see people through their own lens of trauma sometimes i can do it and sometimes i can't do it and sometimes i want to be violent and, <laughs> and just say, but 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 that and that's okay yes 
It's okay. Mm. There's no, there can't be perfectionism in healing. Yes. Can't Agreed. be. Doesn't work like that. Yes. There's yeah. no picture of exactly how it should look. No. So there we have it. That is mad, bad love. We can't even say it is in a nutshell because we touch on so many different things. Mm. But go and get it. It is out now. Mad, yeah. bad love. Where can we find it? Oh, everywhere. Exclusives, bargain books, readers' warehouse. They'll kill me if I don't mention everyone. The book lounge. It's online. It's everywhere. And also, you introduced me as Sarah Jane King, which is which I love. But actually, Makuala King. I'm sorry, I forgot that. No, don't worry. That. No, don't I'm worry so about sorry. It. That's right. Sarah Jane Makuala King. Yeah, that's, that's right. My dad's name. Yeah. Yes, that's right. My apologies. No. Yes. No, 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 no. Definitely, because I was quite clear on that. Sarah Jane Makuala King, which is just beautiful, because you have embraced. He's embraced you, and I love that part of that you share as well when you called your dad, and how he answered the phone. Yeah, it was when you when you told him. Yeah, my daughter, my daughter. Sure, it was quite full on. Yeah, it was quite it was quite a moment. So shout out to Mr. Makwala. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so Sarah Jane Makwala King, where is Sarah Jane at this moment? I'm really I'm I'm content and I think contentedness is much more realistic than happiness. Contentedness is I'm okay with myself, I'm okay with you, you do you, I'll do me. Um, I start the book with the words, I'm a bad mother, because that's how I felt at the time. Um, I'm not a bad mother. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not probably not the world's greatest mother, but I, I'm very conscious around my parenting. I'm very conscious around my daughter. Um, I'm, in a, I'm in a good space. 2022, after a couple of horrific years, 2022 has turned out to be all right. Oh, that is so, so good to hear. Very, very happy to hear. Sarah Jane Makwala King, thank you very much for taking the time to come and chat to me. And again, sharing so incredibly openly and honestly and exposing yourself like this. I think it is, it takes a lot of guts to be that open. But I can tell you this, you are probably healing so many more people through just being all of that by doing that. And that's why I write.